Welcome everyone. I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to the support of Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobook selections, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I often use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me whatsoever. Every recommendation is either a book I personally read or listened to through Audible and I thoroughly enjoyed it. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and regardless if you decide to continue your membership with Audible or not, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a pretty good deal, so visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Stay tuned after the show where I will give you my audiobook recommendation. My second announcement is Patreon. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. We also have an event coming up in February, honoring the 76th anniversary of Iwo Jima. Details are currently on Patreon, and I'll post this on social media as we get closer, but holy crap, if there is one historical monument to support, this is it. This monument was built for Iwo Jima survivors by Iwo Jima survivors. Visit patreon.com slash marine history to look at our Patreon page. I'll include a link in the podcast description as well. Thanks for your time, and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 57 of History of the Marine Corps. Texas Declares Independence Last week's episode summed up the Seminole Wars. We reviewed the Navy and Marines' efforts in the Everglades against the remaining Seminoles, discussed a high-level review of the American Indian Wars, and provided a few statistics about the conflict. We ended the episode by heading out west, and examine the struggle between Texas, local Native American tribes, and Mexico. The clash between the three nations would lead to Texas earning its independence from Mexico, and eventually joining the United States. This week, we dig a little deeper into the cause of the Mexican-American War. We spend the first half of the episode discussing the history between Texas and Mexico, expand on the United States' perceived right of manifest destiny, and take a look at Mexico's leadership. The second half reviews how U.S. citizens view the decision to go to war, a couple of early battles, and an introduction to Marine Archibald Gillespie. We end the episode with the Marines landing on Mexican soil. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps.
The story about the Mexican-American War usually circles around the annexation of Texas. The Texas Revolution against Mexico was a brutal conflict. It involved horrendous massacres during the Battle of Alamo and the Battle of Goliad, which gave birth to battle cries we still know today, such as Remember the Alamo and Come and Take It. However, Texas wasn't the only territory rebelling against our neighbors to the south. Mexico's terrain in the 1840s expanded to large areas of North America. When Texas rebelled in 1836, California did the same. They raised a flag with a single star, known as the Lone Star Flag, and drove Mexican forces out of the area. The current California state flag memorializes the state's independence from Mexico with a single red star on the upper left corner of the flag. A few states have used the Lone Star flag to display their independence from a foreign nation. The colors of the flag and the star were sometimes different, but the meaning was the same. For example, Texas and the Republic of West Florida used a similar flag, called the Bonnie Blue flag, to display their independence. The Confederate States of America also used this flag during the U.S. Civil War. The United States made great strides in its westward expansion. In 1845, John O'Sullivan had some letdowns in his life. His business ventures often failed. He almost ended up in prison for attempting to annex Cuba. And he wrote frequent essays in the Democratic Review, hoping his political friends would recognize him for his services, but that never happened. O'Sullivan published an essay that coined Manifest Destiny, which suggested the United States' mission was to spread their belief across the land. Unfortunately for O'Sullivan, this phrase wouldn't become popular until 1895, but most Americans believed in this concept. Manifest destiny was the belief that the United States, specifically Anglo-Saxons, were destined by God to expand across North America and settle in new territory. So Anglo-Saxons are Germanic people. Small groups of them lived in Britain and even smaller groups migrated to the United States when we were still colonies. But their presence wasn't large enough to merit a population. In the 1840s, this term slowly evolved to one that distinguished white people from other races living in North America. However, it didn't include all white people. It involved only those who were settled on the East Coast and helped during the Revolution and spoke English. At the time, Irish immigrants were looked down on. However, if they had a child born in the United States, supporters of this belief would praise them as Anglo-Saxon. I consider this more tribalism than racism, but whatever you want to call it, it's still a ridiculous concept. But I'll post his essay on historyofthemarinecorps.com so you can read it yourself. Political parties, specifically the Democratic Party, linked scientific interest to the belief that Anglo-Saxons were superior than any other race. It was America's divine right and duty to take the land and settle in the West to spread their religious beliefs and democratic values. As Americans started to migrate West, they encountered resistance to their expansion. Mexico was going through her struggles at the time. Conflicts between Spain and Mexico went on for decades, 
and despite Mexico winning its independence in 1821, the Spanish government would continue to attempt to reconquer this country. In 1829, Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna led Mexican forces against a Spanish attack to reconquer Mexico and successfully defended against the invasion. He did this with a smaller army, which gained him a considerable amount of respect from his fellow Mexican citizens. He was considered a hero. Later that year, Vice President Anastasio Bustamante enacted a coup against President Guerrero, who was executed in 1831 by firing squad. Bustamante promised a new policy in a better country, but he never delivered, and the country started to go downhill for a couple of years. In 1832, Santa Ana declared a rebellion against Bustamante, which resulted in most of his cabinet being relieved or killed, and him being exiled. New elections were held in 1833, which Santa Ana won, making him the new president of Mexico. Although he won the presidency, Santa Ana did relatively little to serve the Mexican people. He hated the role of president, and not too long after his victory, Santa Ana nullified acts of Congress, prohibited Congress from assembling, changed state and city administration whenever he felt like it, and created a revolutionary plan that made him the only source of authority. This move effectively made Santa Ana a dictator. He established his own central government and filled it with representatives who aligned with his views. And in October 1835, department councils replaced the state legislators. Texas settlers had always faced resistance from the local Native American tribes and the Mexican government would often give land to migrating Americans to create a buffer between hostile Native Americans and Mexican citizens, ironically creating a human wall between the two countries. To be fair, this wasn't the only reason Mexico gave land to Americans. They hoped that by giving land to new settlers, they would become loyal Mexican citizens and stop the United States from slowly taking their land. Texians requested military support from Mexico, but they were unable to send military troops. Instead, they sent a single six-pound cannon to Gonzalez settlers to defend against Native American attacks. After Santa Ana overthrew the Mexican government, he believed that Texas would use this opportunity to separate from Mexico. So Santa Ana ordered the Mexican military to disarm the Texians which included taking back the cannon given to them a few years prior. Texas gave a simple response. Come and take it. On October 2, 1835, Mexican forces traveled to Gonzales to take Texas up on their offer. It was a short fight, but an important milestone to the independence of Texas. Texians managed to cause the Mexican army to retreat. There were two deaths on the Mexican side, and the only casualty from Texas was a man who received a bloody nose from being bucked off his horse. However, this battle marked the start of the Texas Revolution. For six months, Texas fought for its independence. It ended with a few militarily insignificant battles, but motivated Texians to keep fighting. The Battle of the Alamo 
where a couple of hundred Texians refused to surrender against a military force of thousands and ended up with most Americans slaughtered, gave Texians an insight into how Santa Ana ruled. For any remaining sympathizers, the Goliad campaign, where over 400 Texas prisoners were executed and piled up and burnt, gave the Texians the drive to keep fighting. Included in the execution was Colonel James W. Fannin, commander of the forces at Goliad. Before his murder, he had three requests. To be shot in the chest, given a Christian burial, and have his watch sent to his family. Mexican authorities denied his request. Fannin was shot in the face, burnt with the other bodies, and his watch was kept as a war prize. Fannin's watch would eventually make its way back to Texas and is stored by the Dallas Historical Society. It's unclear if this is the actual watch or a forgery, a question even asked by the Dallas Historical Society, but the watch's inscription provides some evidence on the ownership and the authenticity. On April 21, 1836, during the Battle of San Jacinto, Santa Ana led an army about 50% larger than the Texian force. General Samuel Houston conducted a surprise attack against Mexican forces, which caused them to retreat. Many Mexicans attempted to surrender, but Texians refused to accept their submission and shouted, Remember the Alamo. Remember Goliad. Within 24 hours, the Mexican army faced 630 dead, 208 wounded, and 730 captured. Texians had 9 dead and 30 wounded. During the fight, Santa Ana changed into a private's uniform and tried to escape. He was found hiding, and Houston promised to set him free on the condition that he agrees to the terms of Texas. Santa Ana agreed to set the Texas boundary along the Rio Grande. This event was the end of the war, and Texas had gained its independence. Mexico would argue that this treaty was invalid because it was agreed to under pressure. This motivated Californians, and they launched a revolution almost two months later. On June 14, 1836, residents in Sonoma revolted against Mexican authorities and declared their independence as well. However, this revolution wasn't as successful. The Mexican government didn't acknowledge California's independence, but they let the northern half of the state pretty much rule themselves. Californians never unified, and the United States didn't want other European nations capturing the newly independent nation, so they sent marines and sailors to the Golden State something we'll cover later in the series. On January 27, 1845, while Texians were attempting to win their independence, the United States saw an opportunity to increase its territory. The U.S. Congress introduced a joint resolution for annexing Texas to the United States. This move by Congress pissed off Mexico, which caused them to cut off diplomatic relations with the United States. The Mexican government publicly declared that a union between Texas and the U.S. would be considered an act of war. But privately, the government hoped on negotiating and did more talking than fighting. This private belief eventually made it to the public and enraged some Mexican citizens. 
They saw this as backing down from the United States. President James K. Polk didn't help the situation. Along with the diplomats sent to start negotiations, he also sent an army, commanded by Zachary Taylor, to defend southern Texas. The addition of U.S. armed forces, fortifying positions in what many still considered Mexican territory, further infuriated Mexican citizens. This move caused Mexican authorities to decline meeting with the American diplomat, eliminating both countries' opportunity to have a civil negotiation about their disagreements. This decision also caused Polk to declare an, quote, ample cause of war, unquote, and considered sending Congress a formal declaration against Mexico. What Polk wasn't aware of at the time was that Mexican forces were one step ahead of the U.S. On April 25th, the Mexican army crossed the Rio Grande and attacked U.S. forces, which resulted in 16 U.S. deaths. General Taylor sent a letter to the War Department that stated, quote, Hostilities may now be considered as commenced, unquote. This news reached Polk on May 9, 1846, and he delivered a formal declaration of war to Congress two days later. Polk stated that Mexico had, quote, invaded our territory and shed American blood on American soil, unquote. On May 13th, Congress overwhelmingly approved the declaration. However, this decision divided the country. Democrats sided with Polk and they approved of the president's decision to go to war with Mexico. However, the Whigs saw Polk's decision solely as an excuse to expand the U.S. territory. But regardless of public opinion, U.S. declared war and Congress started preparing for combat. They authorized increasing the army size from 8,500 to 15,000 and the Navy from 7,500 to 10,000. They also authorized a volunteer force of 50,000 to help support this war. Archibald Henderson commanded the Marines. Henderson participated in the War of 1812 and the Seminole Indian Wars. His participation in these two conflicts earned him the rank of Brigadier General by Brevet in 1837. This rank was the highest obtained by a Marine officer. At the time, you could think of the Marine Corps as the bastard children of the armed forces. It's kind of that way today. No one really knew what to do with the Marine Corps or who would command this force. When the Marines fought on land, they usually reported to the Army. And when they fought at sea, the responsibility fell on the Navy. It wasn't until Congress passed an Act for the Better Organization of the United States Marine Corps in 1834 that it was decided the Corps was part of the Navy. But there was a caveat. Although the Marine Corps fell under the Navy's jurisdiction, the President had the authority to assign them to the Army, if needed, which is what happened during the Seminole Wars. But due to recruiting efforts resulting in low enlistment rates, no one wanted to take on the responsibility of staffing Marines. Both the Army and the Navy had a hard time finding troops, so when the Mexican-American War broke out, the Marine Corps' strength was 63 officers and 1,200 enlisted. But I tend to look at these small numbers through rose-colored glasses. The Marine Corps' strength didn't rely on its size. It relied on the effectiveness of the Marine, a value established by commandants such as Burroughs and Henderson, 
and have been carried into today's core. Throughout the war, Archibald Henderson would argue for more Marines to properly protect naval yards, man ships, and support land operations. However, Congress never approved additional forces. The Marine Corps' size stayed the same for the duration of the Mexican-American War. This wasn't necessarily a bad thing. This decision resulted in the same Marines fighting in multiple battles, which gave them substantial experience over their colleagues. This experience also gave rise to some great leaders in the Marine Corps, two of which would eventually become Commandant. Due to Mexico's location and its rebelling territories, there was confusion on where to place the Marines. On one hand, the Navy had created a stringent blockade of the Mexican coast. They needed Marines on warships in the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of California. On the other hand, ships would have to sail over 14,000 miles by sea to travel from one side of the country to the other. Marines would be a valuable resource when attacking Mexican forces located inland. There was also a strong argument strategically for having Marines serve on ship as opposed to land. Despite having a smaller force, Marines could conduct an amphibious landing, board the ship, travel a few miles down the coast, and launch another amphibious attack. This strategy gave the appearance of a larger force. And it allowed a few hundred Marines and sailors to control an area of thousands of miles from California to Mexico. This plan was easy to accomplish since Mexico didn't have a navy to compete with the United States. On October 18, 1845, a young Archibald Gillespie received orders to go to California on a secret mission for President Polk. Six months later, Gillespie arrived at Monterey, California, and delivered to the American consul secret instructions from the President and the State Department. As Marines, we rarely hear about Archibald Gillespie. I'm assuming it's because the tail end of his career was, shall we say, less than Marine-like, but there's no doubt that this Marine was one of the most important figures in the conquest of California. I will be dedicating an episode to Archibald Gillespie as we get further into the Mexican-American War. With the United States and Mexico officially at war, Archibald Gillespie in California, skirmishes along the Rio Grande, the Mexican-American War was in full swing. Matamoros was the most important port in Mexico and served most international commerce from Europe and the United States. U.S. Army General Zachary Taylor, also known as Old Rough and Ready for his willingness to fight alongside his men, prepared to move his forces across the Rio Grande. General Taylor commanded the Army of Observation which was later renamed to the Army of Occupation, and was the largest body of troops assembled since the War of 1812. It contained half the total strength of the entire U.S. Army. In February 1846, they marched 150 miles from Christie, Texas, to the Rio Grande. While Taylor and his men marched, the Mexican Army sent reinforcements to Matamoros to prepare the city's defenses. When Taylor arrived, he set up a fort directly across the river. Within two days, the United States and Mexico fought two battles between the two nations. There was uncertainty that the U.S. Army could defeat the Mexican Army, 
and many United States newspapers reported this doubt. The media expected that the U.S. Army would be overwhelmed by a larger and more experienced force, but Taylor and his men would prove the media wrong. On May 8th, the Battle of Palo Alto kicked off, which resulted in a decisive win for the Americans. It set the stage for the next day, where the U.S. Army and Mexican Army faced off in the Battle of Resaca de la Palma. Despite being outnumbered, the United States won the battle. The Mexican Army retreated across the Rio Grande to nearby Matamoros. Many Mexican soldiers drowned while fleeing across the river. Shortly after the battle, Mexican General Mariano Arista ordered troops to evacuate the city. On May 18th, Marines and seamen from the U.S. frigate Cumberland and the Potomac traveled up the Rio Grande. They landed at Matamoros on the river's south side. When the Marines landed, they promised protection to the local citizens. They discovered more than 300 wounded Mexican soldiers in the local hospitals. Marines determined that the Battle of Resaca de la Palma eliminated one-fifth of all Mexican forces assembled at Matamoros. The lack of supplies meant that Mexican forces were weak. The lack of ability for Mexican forces to protect the most important port in Mexico caused a significant blow to Mexican forces' morale. Although the Marines didn't encounter resistance, the occupation of Matamoros made them the first U.S. forces to set foot on Mexican soil. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll start getting into some battles fought by the Marines. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is American Ulysses, A Life of Ulysses S. Grant by Ronald C. White. This is a good book that explores the 18th President of the United States. During this episode, we touched on General Taylor and his sizable military force that guarded Texas's southern border. Grant and his men were a part of that force. Grant was a phenomenal military officer and a defender of equal rights. This book covers Grant's term as president during the Civil War, something we'll get into soon, as well as his thoughts on the policies of his predecessors regarding the rights of Native Americans, something we covered during previous episodes. Grant was an essential figure in this part of United States history, and I suggest this book to understand the struggles faced by the United States during this time. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.